0: There are some people who are simply born to write songs. Some of us develop the skill. Many of us develop the skill. We work at it. Honestly, pretty much anybody who ever wrote even one halfway decent song probably had to work at it and work hard at it. It's a muscle. It's a craft. There are techniques. But some people are simply born to do it. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Songs quite literally move through people, Songwriters often describe the experience of feeling a song coming through them as they write it, as if it wasn't coming from them, but rather using the writer as a conduit. And maybe so. And songs travel through listeners, too, like a virus, really. Catchy melodies are referred to sometimes as earworms that burrow into your head. Some people think of music as a form of medicine, of healing, that moves from soul to soul. But people also move through music. For many of us, Who devote our lives to making, playing, or even listening to music, we are transformed through that experience. Music becomes a way of traveling through the world. Songs, in that way, are a mode of transportation. And for Beth Nielsen Chapman, I think that's certainly the case. She's a songwriter's songwriter. She's in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. She won two Grammys and a CMA Song of the Year Award for co-writing Faith Hill's hit song, This Kiss. Since getting her start as a professional songwriter when she was still a teenager, she's written songs performed by numerous artists, including Martina McBride, Willie Nelson, Tanya Tucker, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Crystal Gale, Juice Newton, Bette Midler, and more. So given that's the company she keeps, it may come as little surprise that she's spent much of her life in Nashville. But she's also a solo artist whose personal career has been a little harder to define or to contain. Bonnie Raitt, Amy Grant, John Prine, Michael McDonald, Emmylou Harris, Paul Carrick, and Vince Gill have all been featured performers on her solo records. She's made 16 of them, in fact. Crazy Town came out recently.
1: I don't ever look back. I just want to feel this moment. Follow where it's going,
0: Beth's personal journey has also involved more than her fair share of loss. Her husband, Ernest, died of cancer in 1994. Then a few years later, she experienced her own battle with breast cancer. She eventually got married again to a psychologist and photographer named Bob Sherman. And we met at the end of last year in late 2022, just days after Bob himself had died of leukemia. But Beth has channeled many of those losses and her successes, her life experiences in general, into her work. The songs have often moved through her, and she has, in turn, moved through them. This, my friends, is a really special conversation. 3rd-story.com is a place to go to sign up, subscribe, join the mailing list, check out the archive, including other brilliant songwriters like Ron Sexsmith, Donovan Woods, Theo Katzman, Curtis Steigers, Becca Stevens, Jesse Harris, Jorge Drexler, Imogen Heap and a whole lot more. The Third Story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. And it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to help keep the music moving through this project. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider leaving a review or some stars on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Here's me and Beth Nielsen Chapman talking it down.
2: At some point I'd like to have a whole other conversation with you about the podcast world. I want to talk to you about it cuz I see that you I have one. I had a partnership with uh this place in Nashville called the Acme Feed and Seed, which yeah. is a big giant skyscraper building. And they had you know various clubs and stuff in it, but they had this cool little radio station that was right on the street like you could look in the window and yeah. Oh cool. And they were cool and I had several meetings with them and I worked up a little thing with them where I owned the content but they would partner with me and then there would be people that would I'd come there to their little radio studio station place. studio yeah. and Rodney Crowell came and you oh, know a bunch cool. of really cool artists came and we yeah. did about 14 episodes but they weren't edited so then we just did them really quickly cuz yeah. I mean once I put the word out I mean people were like yeah I'll come and do it and I had a really cool format it was like um my, I'd have my guest person, and I'd have two. I do two song critiques, and it's called the Song School Podcast, right. which I have all still sitting there, kind of frozen. And the idea was that I would have people, you know, send in a song and a lyric, and they'd have to sign a waiver. Yep. And basically, if they were chosen, then I would call them either on the phone in the show. Yep. And and I would have them on the phone. Uh, and they would sing the song or play we 'd play the song depending they could do it live or where they could do it, and then they would um i 'd have the lyric and I would give them a sort of a drive by song critique which yeah. i 'm really good at and <laughs> and uh and then i'd have one other artist come in live and play right. in the you know live in the thing even though it was it was a recorded thing right. so and then i'd have my guest artists who would come in we'd talk about the process of songwriting and da 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 so that was basically it. And But I'd start everyone with a little short, like three-minute creativity blast where I'd talk about something about creativity and the creative process and stuff. And it was great. And then the pandemic hit. And then the person who was editing, just before the pandemic, I got the first few edits. And I'm just such a control freak. (laughs) I wanted it to be... I mean, what, what about that part when Rodney said, like, well, I know, but yeah, I can only do like eight minutes because of it. I'm like... This isn't going to work. So I knew I was going to have to edit it myself. And I know how to edit Pro Tools and, you know, like vocals and stuff. But just looking at 14 of them. And so then I got all the rights back. And then the pandemic hit. And then I've just been like dealing with all that shit. So much shit. (laughs) Um,
0: Beth, Nielsen, Chapman, everything that you just said, which I know was not really even what – you intend to talk about opens (laughs) up so many questions for us though yeah the first thing that comes to mind that i thought about last night when i saw you performing was the role of co-writing and collaborative creativity in your life Mm -hmm. and you know you said this thing i'm a good critique i'm really good at critiquing yeah and it sort of like opens up the question about when you are in critiquing mode versus when you're in collaboration mode and if you see those as the same thing? or Oh, no. yeah,
2: Totally. Well, first of all, writing and critiquing are two different things. And within writing, there are different channels. And my my job as a teacher of songwriters or a person who tries to encourage people who are trying to write songs, because some people won't identify themselves as... songwriters or they don't even give themselves the right to be creative so my passion is to try to find those people and convince them that creativity is not something you have
3: Hmm.
2: it's something you're in you're in creativity it's not up to you Hmm. if you leave your cheese sandwich on the piano and you come back four days later if it's not Velveeta which is not a food there will be mold (laughs) <laughs> it goes right along mm-hmm. all around us all the time. Hmm. So the this thing that's creative flow is like air and mm-hmm. it's all around us and you either tap into it and use it efficiently or not efficiently or not at all and if that's the case then you're probably not breathing. Mm. So people say I'm not creative that's like saying I'm not breathing. Mm. Now, people could say I don't breathe very well. Mm-hmm. And that would be a true statement. So I start from the premise of trying to convince them to look at it as a different thing than the way they probably have been led to believe. So in that, to answer your question that you asked seven years ago, <laughs> the, uh, the process of starting a song, to me, personally, is always trying not to activate my brain at mm-hmm. all.
0: I've heard you talk about that, that you're getting out of the brain space.
2: Yeah. When I, and, and then making it as friendly childlike friendly for as long as possible but as I've become better as a songwriter the other part of my brain that's very much more trained identifies things and starts to do a bit of analytical trimming and reorganizing as I go and that's fine as long as it's not shutting down the childlike flow mm-hmm. and I've managed to keep both of those going and that's when you're really to me when I'm writing with someone who's got both of those channels open we're moving fast yes we're writing a song in 20 minutes yes and then sometimes it'll just stop sometimes the ideas will just go dirk, you know and just stop when someone plays me a song that they wrote I'm not in the childlike what can I do to write you know yes. make something up it's like looking very distinctly at what's there and then finding the way to start with what's working, like, really good here, this part here is great. Yes. And let their very fragile songwriting ego, which of all of us have, including myself, sure start to feel it. comfortable. Anyway, that that process of just recognizing what's working. Yes. Letting them know, this part's great. And then I get them all excited about how great that first verse is, and I yeah. go... So there's no reason why, since you've done that in the first verse, why the second verse wouldn't be as good or better. And then I introduce the homework part of the equation, you know? Right. But the reason I feel like I'm good at it is because I can look at something and see, you know, because I've written a million songs and stuff, I'll just go, that line, that's the third line of the second verse, is actually such a great title, Yeah, you know? So I might say... This might even be a whole other song, but that thing, and you wrote that third line, and I'll pull something out, and they won't have even known what they've done. Yes. you know, And I'll say, write that, and write actually three of them, three different ways. And the other thing I do a lot is, and I do this to myself, so yes. I'm not asking anybody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. If I say the second verse should be better, I'll say, write five more second verses. Even though you think you've done it better and you're really happy with it do me four more, you know, and they're like, why would you do that? And I said, well, that is one of the greatest writing exercises that I can tell somebody to do because your part of your brain is going, why are we doing this? Like I said, if you, if you really want to take this exercise to the max, take your favorite brilliant song. That's everybody knows what it is like yesterday by the Beatles. Pick a song you love that you can play that you really know is airtight. Then write five new second verses to that. While this part of your brain screams at you and says, can't we just go to lunch now because this is stupid because we're not going to make this any better. And as it's not about comparing it. It's just about doing it because it's this sort of the audacity of writing a new second verse to yesterday by the Beatles crashes your brain past the barrier of something into this other thing where you're like hanging your foot over the edge of a cliff and you don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. It's just, I don't know how to explain it any other way and it also
0: seems like it, it speaks to the sort of lack of attachment to the work when you're making it you know like when you're in the writing mode that childlike space that you talk about you can't be judging it because you as soon yeah. as judgment is introduced you're thinking you're it's in sl- your thinking it's brain. slowing it down yeah so the idea of write five second verses is kind of like and don't be too attached to any of them just yeah. write them you know yeah.
2: Oh, and they have to be good,
0: and they have to be good. Because
2: <laughs> I've had people go, yeah, and then I wrote this. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you didn't, you didn't really get invested. You, you didn't
0: know? do, you didn't actually do the thing.
2: So it's really weird. It's like I love that you said that because not being attached and being invested. Yes. At the same time. Yes. Invested without attachment ought to be a t-shirt.
0: I think though that that is the Nashville songwriting career. You know, I don't know enough about it, but mm-hmm. it seems to me that you have a city filled with very committed songwriters who are prepared to walk in once or twice a day and invest in that session with everything they have and then be prepared to walk away from it and have it never be recorded or have nothing ever happen or have
2: somebody completely change it when they record it Mm. you know and, and you're not really in a position maybe you have a publishing deal and your publisher's going well they cut it you know and i mean i've had that happen where they changed one word yeah and it it wasn't as good. And yeah. and in my personal opinion, I think they should ask permission of the writer. Sure. I think that's good good way to behave. Yeah. Some artists just don't realize they sang the wrong word. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't realize that and or they'll just think it's fine, you yeah. know, and it's not like, oh, I think I'll take over and and um but
0: for you every word is intentional. Every in the word the is
2: absolutely intentional. One of the songs that was a number one no number two hit yeah. for Martina McBride. Yeah. Uh, a song called Happy Girl yeah. that I wrote with Annie Roboff, who I write a lot of songs. We wrote This Kiss and a bunch of different things that she's had an incredible successful career as a hit songwriter, too. And uh the song has this line that says, you know, uh let the axis twirl. I'm the happy girl. I'm the happy girl. Like there's just one, and but I'm I'm a, not
0: a happy I'm girl. I'm not a happy girl like Diamond doesn't happy
2: girl. And you'd think that was such a tiny little thing. And I remember, and and, uh, Paul Worley produced this fantastic record, and Martina did a beautiful job, and a great record, hit record. And we were both just, we'd look at each other and go, Oh, God, if she'd just gotten that one word. friends of mine were like, I can't believe you're complaining about it. I'm not yeah. complaining. I'm yes. just saying it's not going to go to number one. And it went up, 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 up. And they were like, see, it's going to go to number one. And it went to number two. Oh, and you think that the <laughs> difference went, oh, between absolutely. two and one. We know that it's because it didn't have the happy girl.
0: Uh, okay, so that suggests that you know when it's not going to number one. Do well, you, I don't really, but... But do you feel it when you think it's a hit? I mean, even if it doesn't achieve hit status, like, do you think this this one, this one is...
2: Well, I'll tell you a really... Uh, I'll try to make it brief. An amazing story about my number one Willie Nelson hit song. And I had had my first number one was a song called Strong Enough to Bend that I wrote with Don Schlitz, the guy who wrote The Gambler and all these big, huge hits for Randy Travis and many more. And uh, we wrote Strong Enough to Bend in 20 minutes. (laughs) And then we wrote another song and then we went to lunch and my head was just spinning. I was it was really one of my first big co-writes when I got to Nashville. And it didn't get cut for two years. And I, you know, the demo went around, everybody heard it, all the girl groups heard it, all the female artists heard it. And then Tanya Tucker recorded it, and I got to sing the background vocals on the record. Then it was a big hit, went to number one, it was nominated for Song of the Year. Like a tree, like
1: a tree, out in the backyard, that never has been broken by the wind.
2: So right from there, my phone started to ring. And one of the people that called me was Fred Foster, who was a giant in the music business. He had signed Chris Christopherson and mm. Dolly Parton. He had Monument Records. He's the co-writer of Bobby McGee, you know, mm. big, you know. Classics. And he was recording Willie. Wow. And he calls me up and he goes, well, Beth, you know, Willie's not writing right now. He's got a lot going on in his life and he's not writing and we got to turn this thing in and he... And he I've been pestering him to get some songs to me and he finally just said, hey, get whoever wrote that song strong enough to bend to write me one or something like that. So it was like deemed, asked directly from Willie Nelson. and And I went about completely losing my mind for three months and I wrote this song that I got the title first, which is always a bad thing for me because then I start thinking too much. But it was a really good title. There's nothing I can do about it now. And there's a great saying in Nashville like, You can't copyright a title, so if you have a great title, keep it to yourself because anybody can write it out from under you. And I kept hearing people saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it now, and I'd be like, ah, somebody's going to write it. Anyways, I wrote the song, and it took me to the very last minute. I literally was driving to the airport in my bedroom slippers with my same robe on I'd had for three months with my dirty hair. Like I'd been in my writing room trying to write this song. Had you been writing other songs along the way? No, I wrote that song for three months. Which is crazy because there was a lot of dead air in there, a lot of, you know, pacing and, um, anyway. So I turned it in, and I got to actually go to Austin and play on the record. And like two days later, I was sitting there in the cut and putt studio in, mm-hmm. in the middle of a golf course in Austin. And I remember huh. they played the demo, which I played all the parts on the demo. It's a little four track demo yeah. where you know, and I did this boodly-boodly-boodly piano thing on my little dinky keyboard, and this was rudimentary stuff I had back then. But it was fun. It was charming, you know. But I had done the the vibe of the, the beat was totally based on On the Road Again. The road again. Mm-hmm. You know, the train beat. Just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. So... They kick it off, and I'm sitting there like six feet away from Willie with the hole in his guitar, and I'm like just pinching myself, mm-hmm. thinking this is incredible, mm-hmm. you know,
0: top of the mountain.
2: And they wanted me to play guitar on it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, Paul uh, English, his drummer, who had started out as his bouncer and ended up working with him, they were like best friends, and he saved his life many times. And back when they were playing behind chicken wire and stuff, he kicked it off. They all listened to the demo. And and they kicked it off, and he just... You know, instead of going... Diga, dun, dun, mm-hmm. diga, dun, dun, diga, dun, he went... Dun, 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 like Swung a it, kind shuffle. of shuffle. And I didn't even know how to play the guitar to that. Yeah. I was just kind of like, like, yeah. well, okay, what are, what's happening? And, and then Willie's phrasing, of course, he's known for his insanely un, unusual, unexpected phrasing. Mm-hmm. So... He just laid his voice on top of there, and I didn't—I couldn't even tell what country I was in. I've got a
3: long list of real good reasons For all the things I've done I've got a picture in the back of my
2: mind Of what I've lost and what I've won And I was like, okay, well this is going all to a different place that I'm sure they're just running it down and we'll do it a few more times and it'll be fine. I've survived
3: every situation Knowing when to freeze and when to run Regret is just a memory written on my brow, and there's nothing I can do about it
2: now. We get to the end of the take, <laughs> and, <laughs> and everybody's going hooting and hollering, and there's like, great job, that was fantastic. <laughs> and, and Willie goes, well, I say, let's go to lunch. Yeah. And I let out some sort of animal sound yeah. somehow in that second. I just thought, no. Like, I said, no. And I'm like, oh, was that me? Oh, yeah. sorry. Because it was just, what, you know? And he looked at me, and his eyes are so intense. He's got, like, really dark eyes. Like not dark mean, but, yeah. you know, like, really intense. Is there a problem? And I'm like, no, no, no. And I started kind of trying to find a way to put into words, like, maybe yeah. we should do it again. And yeah. I said, you know, I just wanted to point out, because there was one thing I noticed, just, yeah. just FYI, before we go to lunch, you know. And I'm like, way too many words coming out of my mouth. And <laughs> part of my brain is going... You do realize you are telling Willie Nelson how to make his own record, right? You hear that you're doing that, right, Beth? So maybe you want to stop with the words. And I was just going, blah, 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 blah. And whatever it was I said was something like, we should try another one or we should listen to the demo again because I said something at the end of it was like, I kind of wrote it to a train beat, sort of like On the Road Again. You're a big hit song. Remember that one? And I think Paul might have heard it as a shuffle. Yeah. And Willie goes, well, let's ask Paul. (laughs) Paul's putting his coat on. Talking to people, and he goes, Hey, Paul, would you say that you heard that last song as a shuffle? And Paul goes, Yeah, yeah, I did. And Willie goes, That's what I thought too. And he goes, Well, let's go to lunch. (laughs) Oh, question (laughs) Question solved. Question answered. Right. Okay. So I go (laughs) to lunch, and I'm like trying not to cry because I know that my dream has now hit the wall, and I'm never going to, that song will never see the light of day. I'm convinced. And I remember calling my husband out behind the back on a pay phone of this restaurant, crying and just saying, it's a total disaster. You know, he goes, "That, honey, you yeah. just haven't had enough sleep. It, I'm sure it's fine. Willie Nelson makes great records, blah, blah, blah. Record comes out. It's the first single. I don't even tell anyone I have a song on the record because, and there were two other of my songs on that same mm. record. He mm. cut three of my songs on that record, and I was just keeping a low profile because I knew I was going down in history as the person whose song tanked Willie Nelson's career for the first time. And it came out and I was like, I, I, I couldn't even listen to it. I was just, and I ended up, I'd sung on it. I played on it, but I was just, it's gonna be a disaster. And then it went into the top twenty. I went, Oh no, now people are gonna hear it. It's gonna go like to top twenty, and then yeah. people are gonna hear it, and they're gonna see that I wrote it and it's gonna tank my career. I mean, I was so consumed. That's
0: very funny. It's gonna be a hit and it's gonna tank my
3: career. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause at the time when I was writing with Don Schlitz, he was having so many hits on the radio. There mm-hmm. were like five of his songs in the top ten. Yeah. And I said, Did you I didn't realize you wrote that song? He goes, Yeah, I wouldn't have put that one out. I'm like well, Don, you wrote it. He goes, yeah, but you got to be careful what you write because when you get really popular, they'll 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 cut anything, even if it's not great. Uh-oh. And I was like, wow, you know. But he he did. He was a brilliant songwriter, yeah. so he had astute knowledge of what he thought was his better songs. And he said, you know, you put it in there, and they anybody will come and get it, and yeah. they'll cut it. And I said, well, I I hope I have that problem Sunday, So anyway, it goes into the top ten. Uh, the Willie Nelson thing goes yeah to the top ten. I start hearing it on the radio. And people are asking me about it, and I'm like, yeah, I wrote that. Well, golly, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, yeah. well, you know, I just, you know, I don't know, I just wanted, didn't want to jinx it. And then it went into the top five, and I was hearing it all the time. And then it was like, I couldn't turn on the radio without hearing it. And then I started thinking, and I started listening to it, and I thought, you know, that's not that bad. Nah. <laughs> By the time it went to number one, I was like, that's right, I wrote that, <laughs> you know, just like that. You know, So I was totally, I metamorphized yes. all the way through that process, and I realized... There's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And if you write a great song, it may not sound right to you, but it's still... And I think that is a great song, and I and I worked really hard to write it. I had to I had to rhyme now like four times more than is humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my little writer's room at 3 o'clock in the morning sobbing because I couldn't come up with another owl rhyme, and I started thinking of rock-a-bye, baby, on the treetop. And then the cradle... The bow. The bow will break, you know, and I thought, and I don't remember how I put it, like, uh, and I've been dreaming like a child since the cradle broke the bow mm-hmm. and there's nothing I can do about it now and I mm-hmm. thought, that's the shit right there. Yeah, you know? <laughs> That's a pro shit. That's some pro shit. And I've been dreaming
3: like a child since the cradle broke the bow and there's nothing I can do about it now. I thought a
0: lot about the craft of songwriting, watching you sing your half a dozen songs last time. You had 30 minutes to get your point across last night. Yeah, it was night. very
2: short. <laughs> and,
0: and there were so many thoughts that, you know, that I collected in that short amount of time. But one of them was, an artist is a thing. Mm-hmm. To be a singer and have a compelling delivery is a reality. To be a great musician is a thing. But a song, a great song, can also walk itself onto a stage on its two legs and deliver itself to an audience through whoever is going to say i mean sometimes the song is much greater even than whoever's delivering it. the song is so powerful right. a real song a great song well crafted provocative song something that makes you feel something that cr- has its own three dimensions it lives in its own universal space is so powerful and you just I mean, you are also an artist and you're a musician and you're a singer, but the songs were so strong and so compelling and it it made me remember, right, this is about songs. I mean, really what we're you know, songs have their take on their own life, which suggests that all of those songs that you sang, which are deeply many of them deeply personal to you, Mm -hmm. could also be delivered differently by different people and still have their same integrity, even though yes. they might not be the way you would sing them or, th- or have envisioned them. Yes. The song almost takes on its own life at a certain point. It doesn't yes, belong absolutely. to anyone.
2: That's right. That's right. And When I wrote Sand and Water yeah. and I played that, the first person that heard it was Rodney Crowell. Yes. And I remember trying to get him to write it with me because yeah. I wanted him to co-write something with me. And he's like, that's finished. Yeah. And not only that, but that song is gonna go out in the world like a little piece of medicine. It's going to find who needs to hear it right when they need to hear it. And it's not even your business what happens then. You can't even stop it, no matter what. Even if it's not a single, even if you think it's just this, it it will have its own power source to get to the next person. Yes. And that's exactly what's happened.
1: All alone I came into this world All alone I will Someday die. Solid stone is just sand and water, baby. Sand and water, and a million years gone by.
2: To me, those songs that have done that to me, that other people have written, have been my guiding light of the standard I want to reach as a songwriter. And, you know, I've been incredibly blessed with some of the recordings I've had of my songs, and I've also had some really amazing recordings where the person singing made some big changes in the song, and I would have, if they'd called me and said, can I do that, I would have begged them not to, because I really do feel that I have it right, you know, and it's all subjective, but... But then they went ahead and made an absolutely stunning record. Yeah. But I still hold that if it had been the happy girl, it would have been Number one. Even better. (laughs) Well, even better. Who knows if it would have gone to number one. But the song, I want to get back to what you're saying, because this is one of my pet peeves about where we are. And I don't want to go off into music biz, because that's a whole other, that's another show and a half. But what we have lost culturally as humans, as a result of things that are out of balance and what do you want, whatever you want to call it, greed or corporate whatever, that has undermined the ability for the people who actually write the songs, even if they are or are not the singers, sometimes mm-hmm. they are, sometimes they are not. Especially in Nashville, there are working songwriters. Yes. And the percentage that they get of the trickle down of whatever streaming is, is abysmal and absolutely criminal. And, you know, I just had somebody ask, my brother just asked me this morning, so Spotify's getting better now, you know, and I said, no, they're actually not near, near good enough. There's a lot of PR and a lot of campaign and a lot of thank you so much, Spotify, because blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's so so beyond out of balance, and it needs to get fixed and sorted, probably through legislation. That said, I was asked to be on a panel, and I won't name names, but there was the head of a lot of the tech companies, and I was the token singer-songwriter. And I was at the end of a long line of people calling it content, 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 and how it should be free, 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 free. And it got to me. And this is in a room full of 30 somethings, most of whom were on and off looking down at their phone while all this technical stuff was going on. And I had 30 seconds to do my thing as the token singer songwriter working actually in, you know, an actual one of those content people that mm-hmm. makes the stuff, you know. And I just thought, what am I gonna say? You know, I don't even know where to start. Hmm. So I just went
1: i am a lineman for the county and i drive
2: the main road searching in the sun for another overload and then i stopped you could hear a pin drop every single face was up going Mm. like what's she doing you know and i let this one second pass and i said what just happened Mm -hmm. What did I just do that made everybody look at me? What just happened, you know? What I did was some content, (laughs) y'all. Okay, so the person who wrote that song didn't have to do another job. Now, they were brilliant, and by the way, his name is Jimmy Webb, and there are people who are born to do that, Mm. and that has enriched the lives of people beyond measure, and they need to be paid it's like a part of the garden that's not getting any water and you're not going to have any flowers for long, you know? So the song is the gas that goes in the, in the car that makes the artist who's let's say the, let's say the artist is the vehicle. You Mm -hmm. could have a Maserati. If you don't have gas in the tank, you're not going anywhere. You could put rubbing alcohol in there. But you won't get far. Yeah. So the song, like you're talking about, like a song. I love what you said. A song can walk onto a stage, and like Waylon Jennings, who I got to be friends with, said to me one time, it was a great song. Don't care who sings it." Yeah. And that is the absolute core value of what the music business has to offer. And if you don't start with that, if you don't start with a great song, you know, there's a great uh, thing you would see bumper stickers about 10 years ago. It says. It all starts with the music. It all starts with a great song. Starts with a great song, and now it's changed. It's crossed out. It says it starts with a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. In other words, please pay them yeah. <laughs> so they can make money. Anyway, enough lecturing about that. But and I teach workshops to people who are finding out they have permission to try to write them, or try to write anything, or to try to paint something, or try to do something, and and they get so excited. And I said, this is really not about whether or not you're going to make it. It's not about whether or not. You get lucky because part of it's luck and part of it's timing. And But look at Van Gogh, you know. I said, if you're willing to be Van Gogh and you find that the value of creating your body of work is worth what it's worth because you're just doing it, that's what I would point you towards. And then it might be great and it might be not, but it will be something nobody else could have done.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you are sitting right now in the intersection of art and commerce. You— don't want to get bogged down in the business, but the business is a reality and you have strong feelings about it because you understand what it is to be valued as a songwriter. And on the other hand, you of all people have made a career out of writing the most intensely personal songs. I mean, maybe not all of them.
2: Well, they're pretty much all... Somehow, there's a personal thing in almost every one, even if it's a song like This Kiss. You know, right. there's, there's some essence of my truth that comes in there or something I'm learning and figuring yeah. out usually.
0: I talked to the songwriter last year, David Poe, who said to me, a song doesn't have to be real, but it has to be true. It
2: has to ring true, yeah. Yeah,
0: I love that. I mean, maybe yeah. that's been a phrase that's been... Uh, but I loved that, and I, I've been yeah. sort of living by that. Yeah, it doesn't have
2: to... It doesn't have to be autobiographical. Yeah. You know, like I, I sing a song called Years, which is a song about growing up in one place yeah. uh, and going to co- coming home from college and <laughs> sitting on the porch before I let my parents know that I'm there. And I wrote the song after I got married and moved to a house in 1979, In Mobile, Alabama, that my new husband's great-great-grandfather had built. And I realized I'd missed out on sort of being from somewhere because I'm an Air Force brat. So what do I know about being from somewhere? And I forgot to go to college. So I always introduce the song saying, nothing in this song is true, except that the truth of the song is that I got it. I got it that I missed out on something. And I was kind of working through my sense of what I missed yes. and but all of the um the directions home are in the song like you turn left on laurel and then the house appears there are re- there are true things in the song yes so I'd like I tell them that on the beginning that I start playing the song it's a song called years and I say I I went home for Christmas to the house that I grew up in and then I go
3: mm-hmm. and wink at the wink. audience
2: and they laugh so it's part of my show to kind of yeah. show that you don't have to write autobiographically yes except from the sense of your center of truth. I went
1: home for Christmas To the house that I grew up in Going back was something After all these years I drove down Monterey Street And felt a little sadness When I turned left on
2: Laurel And the house appeared Sometimes it's discovering the truth, figuring it out. In fact, I wrote a song on my new record called The Truth Mm -hmm. because my sister and I have had this ongoing intense discussion. We would actually book time to talk to each other on the phone because she is on the exact polar opposite of my political Mm. reality. She's in the world where her reality is something that she derives from a source that i wouldn't even spend five minutes listening to so that's happening a lot in not just our country but all over the world and we have these conversations we start and end with i love you i love you too well you're absolutely wrong well you know you're wrong well you're brainwashed no you're brainwashed we have not moved the needle one inch except we still love each other and we're still showing up and trying to have these conversations in a gentle constructive way but we both hit the same brick wall so i wrote this song called the truth and I remember my first husband, Ernest, used to say, you know, a thing is what it is and not another thing. And there's only one thing that's true. So I, every line in this song hmm. is about the distillation of what is it, what is the truth. And it's like, you know, the truth is always now and ever what it is. And, you know, you, you can see the lyric when you look at it. But what I love about it is that my sister thinks every so- every single line in that song is true.
0: And so, and so do you. <laughs>
2: and so do I. Oh! The truth is only
1: now and always what remains. Oh, the truth is only everlasting, never changed.
2: What a weird, funny time to be in the world. You know, this is this is something that I think everyone is challenged by, and. I think we're, I'm finding that kindness is the only Mm. um, thing that makes sense. Like even somebody who's just completely lost their mind, I just look at them as in an altered state. Yes. And I'm just going to make sure that I don't make it worse. (laughs) I've stopped trying to convince people. Yeah. You know. But I do try to get through through my songs. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, and I think you can do a lot. I think you can do a lot through songs. I mean, I think you can, w- yeah. whether or not people are even aware of what's being done to them. I think you can transform people through songs. But actually, what I want to talk about now for a minute is how songs have transformed you. And, you know, you mentioned about how you didn't grow up in one place and that you missed out and you forgot to go to college. Let's talk about it. You grew up in a big family and an army, Brad. That's like two. That's Air Force. Air Force, Brad. <laughs> yeah. So that's two kind of big life pieces. You're right. one of five kids. In the middle. In Right in the middle.
2: Trying to keep everybody safe on either side of me, yeah.
0: I saw you walk on stage last night, and I thought, there is a natural way of talking to a group of people that Maybe can only come out of coming from a big family where it's like I'm here, yeah, uh, you know, right. look at me, and now I'm here to do talk to you right now, and you guys looking right. at me, I want to tell you this thing right now. Yeah, and I said to Amanda, she, you know, she come from a big family. I could just, see, there was something about the <laughs> yeah. way you talk to the audience the second you I walk you in a room out.
2: talking is what I do, so I've been, uh, I've been told that's not cool sometimes. So yeah,
0: I almost could see you as a kid just in that moment, like this is what, <laughs> must be what it's like to be in a big family. Yeah.
2: But, you know, for many years of my early career, I was uh, very awkward on stage and very um, self-conscious and not really believing that I quite had what it took mm-hmm. and that I was, you know, always overworking my voice. I mean, I had a—I was a late bloomer mm-hmm. to coming into my center as an artist. Yeah. And I remember my first husband was like my best cheerleader and also my deepest critic. He he used to get so furious with me. If he'd come and see me at the Bluebird and I'd yeah. play a song. There's a, one song I wrote. Um, when I was 18, I had a boyfriend who died suddenly of a brain tumor. Mm. And that was just like shocking. And I wrote this song several years later about that plus another friendship that went awry. But it's a song called Emily and it's about losing a best friend. And it's everybody cries during this song. <laughs> And I, when I first wrote it, it had power to it, you know. And then, and I, I would play it, and and the minute I would finish the last chord, you could hear people sniffling during the song, you know, because it has the turns in the middle of the bridge, and people go, like, "Oh no, she's dying." And um, and I would always just do some kind of stupid joke, or I'd cha- I'd do a funny voice or something before they even had a chance to hear the the, the last chord mm. ring out. And I remember having this huge fight with Ernest on my way home. He was so furious with me. He says. I don't understand why you would be given this God-given talent. You write this absolutely airtight, perfect song. You have everyone's heart cracked open. And then Beetlejuice jumps out of your mouth or something. (laughs) What is that? You know, why did you do that? And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, don't criticize me. He goes, no, you have to hear me. You have to hear me. Please, the next time you sing that song, I want you to freeze. Like, freeze. Count to ten. And then just be normal, okay? Don't be funny. Don't say, ha, ha ha, never mind. Sorry, I didn't mean to tell you she was gonna die. You know, it was just this thing. Some friendships grow distant with
1: time, and it's no wonder Emily. So much can change. Where to Remains Best friends are made Through smiles And tears And sometimes that fades Over miles And years But I knew right away When I saw you again Emily will always be friends
2: And he was trying for many years to get me to not be so nervous when I performed. And when he was actually like a couple of days before he died in 1994, one of the last conversations I had with him, he said, okay, I know Mm. I've been bugging you about how to be comfortable whatever. He said, listen, if you're not enjoying performing, just stop doing it because I want to let you off the hook, you know? And I was like, wow, you've never said that to me. He goes, I just think you need to have fun. Just go out there and have fun. If you're not going to have fun, then do do something else don't feel pressured to do that and it was the weirdest thing and after he died about 2 weeks later i s- ended up singing a song for a friend of mine at an event i walked out on the stage and i felt completely in my center and i felt at peace and i just thought thank you <laughs> i don't know how you did you that, did that. But, and i never ever looked back and the other thing i learned how to i learned how to make mistakes mm-hmm. so when i walk out on a stage making mistakes is part of the program you know yes. and it's as soon as I make the first mistake, especially in the UK where I tour a lot, my, my fans are like, there she goes. All right. It's going to be a great show. I mean, I literally don't lose one second of anxiety yes. over worrying about whether or not I make a mistake.
0: Let's walk it back a little bit. Okay. Because that was your answer to I came from a big family. Um, <laughs> I
2: know. You got to um, just put your hand up. When no, no. I love, I, I love it. I love
0: it because every every road leads to a wonderful right. place. You <laughs> You're born in Texas?
2: I was born in Harlingen, Texas.
0: And then moved to Germany.
2: No. Then we moved to uh, New Hampshire. Then Uh we moved to Massachusetts. Uh Then we moved to California. Then we moved back to Massachusetts. Then we moved to Germany. Then we moved to Alabama.
0: And you stayed in Alabama.
2: And we stayed in Alabama. And I moved from Germany to Alabama when I was turning 13, and it was 1969. And my last school trip had been to go to Dachau. So that was pretty earth-shattering for me.
0: Did you draw a line between... What you had seen in Germany and the civil rights movement in Alabama when you got... Before I
2: even got to Alabama, after going to Dachau, I missed like three days of school. I was in the fetal position. I was overwhelmed. I was psychically absolutely overwhelmed. And my mother was really upset because she didn't read the fine print of the permission slip. She just kind of signed it, and off I went. And it, it changed my DNA about humanity, the world... And I'd been listening to Joan Baez and, you know, starting to look at things a little bit, but I I was still playing with Barbies, you know. And then after that, it was like all the Barbie dolls, like, what time is the news on? You know, like I wanted to know what was happening in the world. And there it was, you know, hosing down black people, Martin Luther King gets killed, you know, the Vietnam War, all that was just on the news. And I was completely now looking at that. So to me, that was exactly what was the same thing as Nazi Germany, any kind of racism, uh, ethnic cleansing. It was to me, it was just another form of ethnic cleansing. So I didn't even know we were moving to Alabama. And then for like a couple of weeks and my dad got his orders, he goes, well, we're moving to Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm like, wait, no, wait, no, we can't go there. Oh yeah. my God. They're like hanging people from trees and they're, they just killed Martin Luther King. And I mean, that's, and, and I just remember being traumatized for the first couple of years. My family is still based there, even though they're all from New York and New Jersey, you know, Uh but um, there's a whole nother generation, you know, and it's come a long way. It's not all the way enough, but I mean, there's the lynching museum, which is an amazing, amazing museum in Montgomery, Alabama now, which I'm so proud that they did because it tells the story, you know, and for that to have been able to happen means a lot of people have shifted uh, or maybe this next generation has shifted.
0: Mm -hmm. You know. You stay in Alabama. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I got married. Uh, Well, I went down to Mobile and ended up meeting my husband and and got married and moved back down there like within six months. And right about that time, it was like end of the 70s, early 80s, I had just gotten a record deal with Capitol Records and Barry Beckett was going to produce my first album. So, but I was still living in Mobile. I had no idea anything about it. I didn't know any, how any of the music business worked. How would you get signed? Well, I was in a little band that played in the Bowling Alley Lounge there in Montgomery. We were the hottest, the only thing going on, really. So it was packed every night. And Mac McAnally used to come down. And he came and saw our band. And then um, I took the place of Tommy Shaw. When I joined the band, I used to sneak in there when I was underage. And then when Tommy Shaw got lifted out and joined Styx, Mm -hmm. I became sort of the band's Joni Mitchell. And uh, so through some people we knew, Mac McAnally and Tommy, I think the the band came to know um, a couple of the producers in Muscle Shoals. And then at the same time, there was a guy that had a studio in Birmingham, Alabama, and I used to go... Hmm dump my songs there and I kind of signed a really bad 5-year slave contract with him for artist and writing and
0: And how old are you at the time? I was f-
2: just 17. My dad had to co-sign and I remember my dad taking me to a lawyer that was uh, <laughs> actually a cattle lawyer yeah. so <laughs> I always tell my songwriting students, if yeah. you walk into your lawyer's office and there's big steers coming yeah. out of the wall, just go somewhere else. Turn but around. He looked at this contract. He said, well, it don't look like she has to pay any money. Just has to leave him her songs and he'll t- get them cut. It sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, he don't pay her anything, but she don't have to give him any money. Yeah. I'm like, hmm. So anyway, I ended up getting out of that horrible deal huh. <laughs> a couple of years later. Because I was in this band that started recording in Muscle Shoals and half of the thing we were recording was my songs. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't heard from that guy in a couple of years and I just yeah. you know but a couple of the songs were well I was I was still under contract. Yes. Yeah. And the guy and then Terry Woodford found out that I had this outstanding contract. He said, Can you bring it to me tomorrow? And I mm-hmm. went, Yeah and I brought it to him and he was like I remember him putting his head down mm-hmm. on the concert mm-hmm. like this. He goes, We can't use any of your songs, we can't use your voice. You have to get out of this contract.
0: Yep. Yeah. So you got it.
2: Then I got a real lawyer, yeah, and he wrote a couple of letters. And what happened was the guy that I'd signed the contract with took my 50 songs, went to Screen Gems, and sold them my 50 songs, and they gave him $12,000. And that was my first aha moment of, I need to actually pay attention to this stuff. And A, and B, this stuff is valuable. Yeah. So the only one favor this person did me... (laughs) Was that they allowed me to see that there's value in what I was doing, mm-hmm. even at 15, 16 years old.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's one song out of that catalog that got cut, you know, by Crystal Gale. So I was still learning. I had a long way to go. A what songer. was the song? A song called When Love is New.
0: Love
1: that's new.
2: uh I ended up learning a lot from that and you know then I was with Screen Gems so they had they had bought my contract and then they renegotiated with me and made it a much better contract and I had a proper music musician's lawyer I mean a music business But you lawyer. were
0: able to get cuts and sing on things you weren't restricted you were yeah, able no, to operate Yeah no it was it
2: was much more reasonable and I got paid 300 bucks a week to get uh-huh. to, to write songs that uh-huh. was like unbelievable I was like winning the lottery yeah. and then they helped pitch me to Muscle Shoals and Barry Beckett became aware of me, and so I started to record this record for Capitol, which came out right at the beginning of the disco era and didn't right. do anything. So. Right, which is good because I it wasn't the best work of my life. It
0: is not out there. It's hard to hear it. It's
2: a collector's item. <laughs> I have the masters, which ended up in a flood, and so they're covered with mud. But I don't own them. They're they're Capitals.
0: So, so it's ten years though, right between that record and the next record.
2: Yes, because I literally was so. Horrified that nothing happened because I was in this weird bubble of now I'm going to make a record and it's going to be a hit and of course you know and I was just I was just naive and I had no idea what really went in and how what mm-hmm. my odds were of mm-hmm. you know even being on a major label how many dime a dozens of those there are but to me that was like I've been discovered you know mm. and Disco Duck was on the radio, and all these other songs were coming along. I, I liked Donna Summer, but I was like, oh my God, you know, I can't. And all the reviews in Billboard Magazine were like, really beautiful work. Too bad she didn't put it out five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, Carol King's Little Sister, yes. you know, kind of thing. So I shut it off. I just went, you know what? That's my best work. That's my best shot. I was on a major label. Screen Gems dropped me about a year later. I mean, I kinda wrote a few more songs for a little while, but then they were like, Well, she's not on she's I got dropped by Capitol, I got yeah. dropped by the publisher. And I thought, Well, I'll just start my family and I don't need to do that. I'll just sing songs in bars and I don't need to do my own stuff. I'm not gonna and I stopped writing, had a baby and all my creative juices went into making paintings and making baby things and sculpting little heads with play doh and just everything except writing songs. And my husband was like, Oh boy, you know, she's gonna She's losing her mind, you know. And what did he do? He was uh, the director of a treatment facility for adolescents that he built from the ground up. And his degree was in philosophy, but he worked with psychologists, and he was he was brilliant. He saved a lot of lives of young kids. He would take wards at the state, and it was like a group home. And it was a full-on, you know— but he always believed in me and he was a, he was a poet. He was very, very good with words, so I, he would be my, my sounding yeah. board, right? So he was trying to get me to write and get me to write and get me to write. And I was like, No, no and I was like a couple of years went by and I remember him coming up behind me. I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to get this nose just right on this little play doh head, mm-hmm. three o'clock in the morning. And he just put his hands gently on my shoulders mm-hmm. and I was waiting for the barrage and he didn't Go, you he know, didn't, He didn't give it to you. He just didn't say anything. And I said, okay. And he goes, I really think it's time for you to start writing songs mm. again. And I said, you know, it's just not going to happen. And the next week, we went to see Coal Miner's Daughter. And it was that movie that hmm. broke th- me through my frozen state. Because I uh, the scene where Loretta Lynn has her three children climbing all over her while she's planting potatoes, while she's writing one of her iconic songs because her career just started getting going and I thought okay I'm being a baby and I then I went back to writing and the first eight songs I wrote were so bad because all I wanted to do was write a Loretta Lynn song I didn't care about writing anything I wasn't going to ever be an artist again I was just going to write songs for country artists and I started listening to Emmylou and really loved um those roots kind of records and stuff and I'd written and they were terrible like really bad and do
0: you think part of the reason you think they are terrible is because they didn't have that kernel of truth in them
2: that's for sure that's for sure but the real thing also was just my brain my songwriting brain was just needed oiling Mm -hmm. you know i just needed to get back into it you can it's a muscle like anything else that's why the one of the great muscle builders uh like if you Mm want to lift three thousand pounds in the gym of creativity rewrite the second verse of yesterday (laughs) about five (laughs) times it will bring you up a notch yeah so and I and I, here's how I knew how bad they were. When I'd play them for Ernest, who would usually be extremely opinionated, like annoyingly opinionated, he would just get real quiet and his eyes would get wider, and he had a really hard time. He could never lie, so yeah. he'd just say, you just keep on writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going. Not going to say anything yet. Let's just keep going. I'm like, oh, boy, that must be really bad. So anyway, I finally wrote a song called Five Minutes, which was – a country song about a woman leaving her husband who's treated her wrong and she's at the door going out and he's coming home and he's saying, what are you doing? And she's saying you got five minutes to yeah. figure it out because yeah. I'm, I'm leaving in five minutes. And that was a number one hit for Lori Morgan five years after I moved to Nashville. So you know, it just had to, the thing had to come of its time. You
1: look so disbelieving at my suitcase by the door my taxi's on its way, I can't take it anymore Lately you've forgotten what love me is about Well now you've got five minutes to
3: figure it out
0: I felt that f- even from your stories last night too. Some of these songs have histories that some are written in 20 minutes, some are written yeah. in f- over the course of 3 years, 5 yeah. years.
2: 18 is my record.
0: Taking 18 years to 18 write a song. 18 years, yeah. So you <laughs> so even though he had built your Ernest had built this center and d- done all of this, he agrees to move with you or he Insisted inc- insists that, move that you Nashville. move to
2: Nashville. Yeah. I can do my job anywhere. You know, of course he couldn't. He, none of his credits you know, he had to get reaccredited, had to go back to, you know, get a degree in counseling and stuff. But he was 100% committed. And, you know, the first couple of years in Nashville, I lost my voice. I was really panic-stricken. I thought, oh, my God, I'm never Because you know, I realized how many other—this was the first time I realized the odds of—because there were so, so many—, many songwriters. Oh, so many talented people. Patty Loveless was working as a waitress at the, you know, Slice of Life Bakery. And I'd hear her singing under her breath when she took my order to the kitchen. I'm like, did you hear that voice? You know, like I was just like, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, but it took a couple of years, you know, and, and it was, you know, I tell people who come to Nashville, I said, just dig in because you're going to be here for a while. And it's, it's a process. I know?
0: think, you know, I was just saying to a friend last night, it's so hard to live in a world knowing that the great geniuses are here, too. Yeah. How do you even get out of bed I know. knowing <laughs> that? And in Nashville, it's like, I mean, New York is kind of like that, too. But Nashville is like they're just around the corner, you know, right. the greatest. Right. You have to, in spite of that, knowing you have to wake up and do your job. And, yeah, and, and, write and here's again.
2: here's my little pep talk. Yeah, for that, you own this little piece of real estate for this period of time that you're conscious and you're in your life, which is looking out from behind your eyes with the particular things that have happened to you and how you've dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Your story. Nobody has that. Nobody mm-hmm. has that channel available mm-hmm. to them, but you so you can either leave a trail of information about what that was like and it can be beautiful mm-hmm. it can be ugly it can be you take out a whole restaurant of people with a shotgun mm-hmm. it, it can be whatever it is mm-hmm. the trail you leave or i call it your body of work and i think of it as like a cave wall that somebody's going to come look at 2000 years from now what did beth think you know so it's what i I work on every day to see how does that how does the world filter through me. Yes. Nobody can do your filter. You're it. You're the camera looking out. That's yes. only one spot in all time in the whole existence of whatever is. You're it. And it's like finding a way to get your ego to sit in that chair. Yes. That's where the ego belongs. The <laughs> yeah. ego belongs there cuz like, you know what? I got something to say. You have no idea how to say what I have to say. Joni Mitchell could not come close to writing my song. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Now, her skills might mean that the way that she writes her song is going to be in a better form, but you can can work on skills. You can get better at skills, but nobody can take your voice. Nobody. So get into that, you know, fill yourself up with that when you're writing and do whatever comes out, you know.
3: You
0: started writing, you already had a, an unusual childhood. you have been moved around a lot. You had a big family, whatever. But you developed a skill, a way of telling your story through your eyes when you were still a teenager. You had no way of knowing what was coming for you. No way. Mm But I think we need to acknowledge that you have experienced an enormous amount of loss. Many people have. Yeah. There's been a lot of trauma. Yeah. Illness. They don't all have the tools to tell their story the way
2: They have have. not all accessed the tools they have to tell their story. Everybody has the tools somewhere or somehow. And people sometimes have to pick up a stick and sharpen it, and that's the tool. So there's different levels of accessibility to great tools.
0: You had started to sharpen your stick. Yeah. And as you've moved through this story, you've been able to kind of chronicle it and tell your story through songs. Yeah which I think is really kind of extraordinary. You know, it's not something that now looking back at your life, you say, you know, I think I need to figure out how I'm going to tell this story. I mean, it's there all along the way. There are all these documents, all these moments.
2: Well, what's really weird is that a lot of my songs that do that, the songs that are the closer to the bone, preceded the events that the songs are about. That's happened numerous times. I guess the first time I really noticed that it happened was with Sand and Water, because half of that album, half of those songs were started. About two years before Ernest was diagnosed with given six weeks to live, and he lived for almost two years. So, mm. I mean, I had half songs written, and I remember playing them for him because I used to play him songs as I was writing them, and and he would be going, "Wow, I love that. What's that about? It sounds like somebody's going to die." I'm like, "I know. I don't know. May I was thinking maybe I'm thinking about my parents, you know, getting older, and mm-hmm. I didn't know. And the thing is, part of the childlike thing of gathering." little bits and just putting them down without judgment is just opening up to whatever comes through Yeah. and then I look at it kind of like the next day and I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting Like, there's this chorus that said we hold it all for a little while, don't we kiss the dice, taste the rain like little knives upon our tongue we can do it all when the lights go on and the music plays and we take the stage like we own the place as if time were cheap and the night forever young we hold it all Little
1: while, don't we kiss the dice, taste the rain like little knives upon our tongue? We can do no wrong when the lights go on and the music plays, and we take the stage like we own the place, as if time were cheap in the night
2: had this chorus and he called it the Bob Dylan song, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was like, when are you going to finish that? You know, he pestered me about that song and a couple of other ones. So there was this premonition of, then he was diagnosed, then everything kind of went on hold for a while, then two years instead of six weeks. And then when he was literally the week before he died, he's still asking me, when am I going to get that last verse to my song? And I wrote that song mad at him. I stomped to the other end of the house and I to wrote this song. it. Because we had just talked about, you know, he wanted to have his ashes scattered in this place where we used to go fishing like at the Gulf the of Mexico. So I wrote this verse. It said, so let him turn my soul seven shades of blue and when the oceans roll, I will wave to you mm. and the birds will sing my laughter and the whales will steal my song and I'll be happy ever after and the world will get her along. And I played that song, laid that verse for him and he was like, that is absolutely perfect, except I'm not sure about happy ever after. I'm like, you are not going to tell me now how to. <laughs> seriously? And he goes, no, it's got to be I'll be okay forever after. And I remember arguing with him about this word. But
0: And, w- and where'd you come down?
2: Uh, well, I had to say okay because he said it was his dying wish. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so every time I play that song and I get to that line, I kind of wink at him, you know, like, it's not as good, but okay. All right. You know.
1: So let him turn my soul. seven shades of blue and with the oceans roll i will wave to you and the birds will sing my laughter and the whales will steal my song But I'll be okay forever after.
2: And the world will get along. We hold it on. But it's okay. Because, you know, there was something about that little fight. That was like our last little fight about mm-hmm. whether and I said happy ever after mm-hmm. or okay ever after. And I'm like, well, you know what, sweetheart? It is my song. He goes, yeah, but it's my death. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, okay, fine fine. You know, fine. Your dying wish. Okay. That's it. You don't get another dying wish. (laughs) What's fascinating though, is, I mean, I sound like I'm laughing about it. Like it's Pat. I mean, it was devastating to lose him. It was devastating to lose my husband, Bob just recently, you know, but in the midst of all of that, there's been this incredible emotional flexibility where we're, we're, we're crying one minute and then we're, we're saying the most funny joke about it because you can't get a, a more contrasting backboard than actual death to bring the light, you know?
0: Well, and I think you were kind of prepping for it like that. So when you told the story about how Ernest was offended or upset or frustrated with you for trying to make light of a heavy moment, telling the story, of your boyfriend yes, who had passed. Right. And he's like, don't do that. Don't right. you should you should s- sit in it and allow people to sit in it. Why are you trying to protect people from right. that? Right. But it almost feels like you had already started to play around with how do I do both at the same time.
2: How do I take care of everybody?
0: How do I take care of everybody? Right. And right. let them know that I'm okay. Right. And it's interesting, like when you talk about people not a dry eye in the house. I mean, you sang some songs last night and we were crying and you were not. And yeah. it made me realize, no, no, you're in I'm okay. I'm okay and I'm in control here. I'm still here to sing this song and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of the music. Right. Which is very, you know, I was, I I have trouble sometimes getting through powerful music without losing myself. Yeah. And, And I thought, this is a skill.
2: I mean, it is a skill that I have slowly developed and in this most recent loss of my husband, Bob, which was just weeks ago. Weeks ago. December 9th. Conversations I had with him Uh, both times with both of my husbands they were very conscious right before they died and very very much aware of the bigness of it and the wonder of it and he he he's like you know I'm not here to put pressure on you to keep doing your shows but you just need to get quiet and go inside and ask yourself can I do this Mm -hmm. and if the answer is maybe or yes I want you to try because It's what you do. Yeah. And the way he said that was like, it's what you do. You know, and I thought, okay, okay. And I said, the worst thing that could happen is you, 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 you know, you wobble, you might cry, you might fall apart a little bit. There are people who will receive that as an incredibly healing experience for them. Yes. You want to just turn it around and think, what good am I doing if I'm up there crying? Well, you're doing good even if you're doing that. Yes. The first concert I did after Bob died was on the 15th of December. So it was... Six just days. a few days, and a friend of mine, Lydia Hutchinson, who I work with and does these wonderful workshops, she suggested because I was still a little oh I don't know how to, I don't know how to talk about it i't I don't, I don't want to start my show by saying, "Hey, here I am, my husband died, you know, and I didn't want to not say that early on in the show because i it was like the elephant in the room you know from in my head. She said, "Why don't we just have you write it out in a lovely little paragraph mm. or two. And we'll make some printouts. And as people come into the theater, we'll hand them to them. Mm -hmm. So the people sitting in front of you will all know the situation in your own words, but you don't have to say it. And I thought, oh, my God. And I remember Mm. doing these three little nights with Dar Williams here thinking, oh, I don't have my handout. How am I going to do this? And last night was only my second time, you know, and I've just been going like, please help me not make a fool of myself as I try to find a way to put this into words with a sense that I'm going to be okay, but the big piece, and this is the thing I didn't have when I was at the Bluebird and my husband was getting mm-hmm. mad at me, I was I had written a song that helped people really open up and cry, but I wasn't okay if I made them cry. It, it mm. made me feel guilty that I made them cry. I didn't want them to think I was trying to manipulate them. So by making a joke at the end of it somehow, which was a really bad move because it didn't fix this problem at all, Yeah. It was my own uncomfortableness with having made them cry right. and almost wanting to apologize to them, but what I did is I insulted them, yes, but anyway, and so, stayed
0: uncomfortable as right. opposed to what you what I saw you do, which is i I'm comfortable with this reality right and acknowledging it and and being in this space yes, and so you can be comfortable and as you I, can cry and you can and cry. I'll be
2: fine. you can cry or not cry, yeah that's yeah. the other thing yeah I don't feel like it should be yeah. You know, when I hear people sing with emotion, that's an overlay of emotion. Yes. That's like, and here's what you're supposed to do now. You know, I don't like that kind of singing. I'm always moved by people who understate. Yes. Who understate. And I I know there's a lot of incredibly powerful singers that put a lot of power in their voice. And that's a different stylistic thing. I'm not talking about that. But if you, especially if you have a song like Sand and Water, if I go, oh you know if I get that you know I, here's how you're supposed to feel when you sing this song that to me is absolutely stops the the energy of yeah. the of whatever healing should happen like like Rodney Crowell said it's not my business who that's needs right. to hear it who doesn't need to hear that's it that's right and I know that I'm gonna deliver a song that's well written and is enjoyable to hear mm-hmm. and if it doesn't make you cry because you don't feel sad about anything that's absolutely fine
0: well people process things different too I mean you yeah. know there's you also, from a craft point of view, you're just dealing with, I was also just dealing with the craft of the song. What a fucking great <laughs> song.
2: And you know, the funny thing is when I wrote, oh, and the other weird thing about my yeah. writing is I write from the sound of the melody through yeah. the vowels. So I had, if you heard my initial work tape, I was going, I don't wanna, I don't wanna. I knew yeah. it was an O, and yeah. I knew it was three of them, and- I didn't mean for this to be what happened, yeah. but the songs organize themselves. I right. think if we open to, if we open to this creative flow, and we say, "I'm here, use me, yes. bring it on, let me help you figure out what we're trying to say here," yes, um, magical things organize themselves. Yes. I didn't go, you know, if I do that three times, then the person who's not wanting to feel it, not wanting to feel it, and then the third time you get to all alone. It just gets – it's like a a great massage therapist will start slow, and then the next time they come to that spot, they're going to go deeper. And that's what that melody does. But I didn't make that – I didn't go, I think I'll do that. Well, It it did it by itself. This
0: speaks to a question of universal or natural structure, right? Because, I mean, when you say things will organize themselves, I think part of what's happening is there is – structure whether or not it's in the universe or it's just what humans like i mean you can sort of get as deep as you want to with it but there are certain patterns that we respond to like say something twice and then the third time change it set up an expectation and then subvert or vary the expectation we may not be aware that we like it but we like that right we like that. Right. We really like that. You know, what I love hearing you say is you could be so coherent. The things that you find yourself saying could be so beautifully organized and you almost feel like you...
2: I had nothing to you do You didn't with it.
0: have anything to Not, do with No, I can...
2: It. I promise you I had nothing to do with it. When I sang Sand and Water for Rodney and yeah. he said, look at this line. Yeah. Solid stone is just sand and water and a million years gone by. I don't think that even makes any sense. I didn't get that line. He goes, Well, two weeks from now, when you're on your way to the dentist <laughs> office, you're gonna be at a red light. Yeah. Let me know when you get it, because it's <laughs> fucking brilliant. Right. About four weeks later, yeah. I was literally in the frozen yeah. food section and I went, yeah. Oh, I get it. It's like I'm standing in front of a boulder, yeah. which is called the grief of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm being told I can't go around it, and I can't go under it, and I can't go over it. I have to go through it. Mm-hmm. The only way to get through solid stone mm-hmm. is if it melts back down into yeah. sand, and then I can walk over it.
0: And it's just made—I mean, I took it as—it's just made out of the stuff that you can walk on. It's not made out of anything else. It's just it's, sand. It's,
2: it's just transformation, sand and water. Yeah. right? So solid stone is the same thing. Yeah. As sand and water, yeah. add a million years, yeah. and it turns into a yeah. stone. That's another way to look yeah. at it. You know, so many lines of songs that I wrote that are the best lines, mm-hmm. like that. That where I go, that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't write it; I just wrote it down.
0: There is a sense, even in your writing, of the divine. I mean, you are willing not only to in talk my writing, in
2: in this conversation, yeah. in every thing happening around us. I feel. I like I have a front row seat to the divine especially amplified by the losses that I've had and the way that I've been given a way through it mm. like I'm not worried about myself I'm absolutely hit with these waves of sadness that just put me on on the floor but they're waves I'm not afraid of them I'm like oh I'm going to cry now I'll be back mm-hmm. in about 10 mm-hmm. minutes you know If you go to YouTube and you put in sand geometry there are millions of these YouTube videos, okay? There's a flat mm-hmm. metal plate. You've probably seen this. Flat metal plate. Um, you put salt or sand on it. They put a tone into it, frequencies. As soon as you put 440 into it, it turns in, the, the sand turns into geometric shapes of ah. one kind. You change the the note on yeah. it, It goes to another shape. shape. And that, to me, I love to show that to my friends who are atheists, because it doesn't matter what you call your god. It doesn't matter what religion or culture you're from. That is divine. That's divine organization. Everything is completely in order, even in the midst and out of the chaos. And that's why my first drafts look like somebody threw up on the page. There's things upside down, and there's writing backwards and forwards, and and, and I know in there a song is forming itself, and my job is to pick through it and try to get it in the best shape I can with my analytical skills and my song craft skills, yes. which you can sharpen. But if you don't give yourself time to walk around in the woods, or you don't give yourself a time not scrolling, death scrolling on your on your phone, which you know we're all susceptible to.
0: Years ago, I interviewed a brilliant arranger and musician, Gil Goldstein, mm-hmm. who. Basically talked about how the overtones, overtone series and the Fibonacci sequence and these naturally occurring patterns are kind of his religion.
2: Yeah. You know to me, all creativity, all yeah. forms of that. Yeah. Chaos or, or yeah. divine order yeah. is all God breathing. Yeah. Just God breathing, like this giant breathing, expanding thing that yeah. organizes itself. So when I feel stuck with the song I mean, I can be stuck sometimes for years trying to get one word. There's a song on my new record called With Time, which is, I think, my favorite song on the record, and it's the word with. I had before time, through time, you know, in time. I had every... And it was just the most natural, obvious thing. And it just, for some reason, took me four years of batting my head against the wall till this just went, dink, here it is. And all the... The thing wrote itself from there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> and I don't know why it takes four years sometimes. When
1: the word
2: makes me cry,
1: there's a calm in the eye of the storm, keeps me from running scared. It's beautiful It's magical. Whatever comes
2: whatever goes with time
0: Do you finish everything or, or eventually,
2: try- I hope before I die, I'll finish everything that I'm excited about, but I mean I have probably, I don't know, probably 130 half-written songs give or take 50.
0: And do you walk them into co-writes? like is that the kind of stuff no. that you bring it? No?
2: Not usually. I might with one person or two people in the course of my career, but when I write with somebody else, I like to start fresh. Yeah, I like to see what even a seed. Do you have a seed? Come nothing. I can, you know, or they'll they'll have an idea. Usually, if I have a seed, I've already decided I want to write it. It's, it's weird. It's like if I have an idea, if I have an idea, if, I, if an idea pops into my head as we're talking, yeah, then it's our idea. And if it's my idea, then I start becoming, well, now I want to be careful how that gets written, because I want to make sure... And I've written with David Wilcox. I don't know if you know David Mm -hmm. Wilcox. He's a fantastic songwriter. You Mm -hmm. should... He'd be a great person to interview, because he's way out there. He's really fun to talk to. And David and I were both at a writer's, kind of an artist colony at the same time. And he heard me playing this melody, Deeper Still is the name of the song. And and I'd had this melody for two years, and I had the first four lines of the first verse... Mm. In the tears you gave to me, I found a river to an ocean, a concrete sky and a stone cold sea. I can't remember. Anyway, it's a song about forgiveness. And he was like, literally came up to me, and I'd not really, I'd met him before. We'd done some shows years before. We hadn't seen him in a long time. He literally crouched down at the piano. He said, "I will do anything to write this song with you." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like this is something. I mean, I have to write it by myself." He's like. No, just give me a chance. Let me just convince you that, I mean, I could work on it today, you know, because we, we were there to write by ourselves. Yeah. And I was like, you know, David, I just think we'd end up not being friends after I put you through whatever hell I'm going to put. I We just, he goes, no, no, no. I would totally give me a day. You know, he was really like, I know I'm supposed to write the song with you. So I said, you know, I'll get, uh, okay, you know, but I was very like, oh God. You know? And the first thing he did was take a legal pad and sit there and go, okay. Let's just tell me some words you like. And I thought, oh, this is very cerebral. I don't write this way. He goes, just tell me some words you like the sound of. And I'm like, okay. First thing that popped in my word, diamond. Mm. Another word, echo. He goes, diamond echo. Oh, I like those together. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Diamonds don't echo. And he goes, well, you know. So fast forward to the end of the second day of writing the song. And he's a great songwriter. I love and appreciate and respect his songwriting so much but i just thought oh boy i'm just this is going to be a different thing than the one that i think i was going to write by myself and i just let go and let go and let go and i was quite happy with where we were going and then when you know like then i was really happy with where we were going and we worked on it really hard yeah and then the with the last verse what made me really realize i did the right thing and like it wouldn't have ever happened that way is there's this line that says um whatever you put into love you get back Yeah, is basically the idea of the song and and there's like a, a silver coin rings down the well like if you put money into a well and you make a wish you know a silver coin rings down that well you can never give too much a diamond echoes deeper still and you always have what you gave to love
1: mm.
2: and I'm like oh my god we got diamond echo in there <laughs> a diamond echoes
1: deeper still
2: and you'll always what you gave to love. I think to the universe, I'm like one of those guys that has to be just totally have it proven to me. Like it hits me over the head, like, you know, <laughs> yep, this was supposed to happen. And I just find divinity is just literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in that glass of water, it's like evaporating. Things are happening, and we're just not.
0: But you can tune into it. Like, I am tuned yeah, into it. I'm it's like happening. We're, we're often not tuned into it, but if you choose to tune into it, if you choose into the cheese sandwich that turns into mold, if you choose in, choose to t- tune into the music that's around us, or the, the yeah. messages that are around us, or the or the shapes that are around us, the the form that's around us.
2: Yeah, and I think going through this, you know, most recent last several weeks and the intensity of that, um, I was doing a tour in the UK five-week tour of the UK. It was wonderful, great, successful, nice crowds. And the last night of the last show, I got a text from my husband, Bob. And, I, you know, he'd been dealing with leukemia for, since 2017, coming into remission and having relapses and stuff. And he would have been having a hard time, lots of pain and discomfort. And I got this text from him, and he basically said, is this your last show? And I thought, that's weird. Mm. He would ask me that. I, I said, yeah. And he goes, well, when you get to the hotel, just, you know, FaceTime me. And then he told me out of the blue, he said they've given me two weeks to live, and I mean it was just like, what? And so I flew home, and you know, then the next he it was like he had three and a half weeks, but that was an incredibly intense time. You know, I'm so grateful for how he came through that and what the way that he did it and how generously and beautifully. He opened his heart to so many people and friends. And, I mean, people are still going, oh, my God. I mean, everyone. he's a psychologist. Every one of his clients he met with personally and said goodbye. And they, the hospice was incredible because they gave him the ability to get – they gave him steroids and methadone. And those two medicines together gave him energy and kept his head clear and kept yeah. him out of pain. So yeah. he had about two weeks where he was just going – this is better than I've felt in yeah. weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard that. Too bad you can't do yeah. this in, all the time. In, infinitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can see why people get hooked on drugs. Yeah. Coming off of all of that, I'm still sort of reverberating from the from the majesty of of how that happened, you know. And then, you know, the loss is also just a big, huge other layer, you know, that hits me completely at random times. And I think this is true for people who have gone through really difficult stuff. And if you haven't, stay tuned. <laughs> so it's not like nobody's going to have that happen to them at some point. Some, yeah. you know, we'll all, we're all going to go through difficult stuff. And and it's interesting. I, I read a lot of books by a guy named uh, Stephen Levine, who mm. wrote a lot about death and dying. And he said one thing that was really powerful, that, you know, people will touch your, your you with fear or with empathy. And fear is usually they're just afraid. Like if they'll say, like, I'm also a breast cancer survivor. And, you know, people would say, Oh, I'm so glad that didn't happen to me. Huh. Good thing it doesn't happen to me. Like, they're saying to the universe, I can't handle it. She's good. She's, She's amazing. Good. She's super brave, you know. And when somebody says, Oh, you're so brave, you went through breast cancer, it's like, I didn't volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: again, you know, I read this is what I wanted to bring this up. I, like, I read that you, when you acknowledged that on the stage, that mm. you'll also, or that your joke for years was then to turn around and tell the audience, Make sure somebody feels you up at exactly. least once a month.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You
0: know, to make it okay that we're. Yeah. Talking about this. Yeah. And to make it part of the most natural conversation that we could be
2: having. Yeah. And I'd say like if you if you don't feel comfortable feeling yourself up, I'm sure you can find a volunteer because <laughs> people love breasts yeah. and they love chests. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. ask around, you know. That's one of those things that it gave me great joy to feel like somebody heard me and didn't have the same experience I had, which was being misdiagnosed for two years and yeah. you know, could have avoided some of the medicines I ended up having to take. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the music, it's just the music is even on this new record, which is called Crazy Town, and we were literally recording it at the end of the recording of all the tracks. Within a week, the pandemic yes. hit. But if you listen through those songs, you would swear that I wrote this as a, a whole collection of songs about, about what was... coming through the pandemic. So again, you know, it happened with, uh, with breast cancer, too. I was on my last day of mixing in the year 2000. And the name of the record was Deeper Still, named after that song I wrote with David. And I found out I had stage two breast cancer and I had to have a lumpectomy and chemo and radiation. And so I didn't put the record out for another year, but it was already done. And then when I put the record out, people said, she wrote the most amazing songs about going through breast cancer. I'm like, nope, nope. I preceded that. There's a light,
1: there's a light in the dark.
0: I started saying that last year too. I made a put out a record during COVID that half of it had been written before COVID, and everybody right. called it my COVID record. And ultimately, I ended up saying the same thing. The songs that you think are about that were written right before COVID. And it really did make me start to believe that our job is to tune into something. And if we, in our particular way of tuning in, as you say, is Specific and unique to us, no one else will tune into the quite the, the frequency in quite the same way, or they won't. Res- they won't You're make the same. Thing. You're the portal of that way
2: of that moment.
0: But I can't explain why I wrote that stuff right before. Yeah. that feels more appropriate given what happened, or or makes sense somehow given yeah. what happened after the fact. So I mean, I've I've just touched it, I've just tasted it a little bit, and I f- and I came to the same conclusion that all you can do is just open yourself to it.
2: Yeah, and the, and the thing is, is as the more you are open to. And curious about yeah. it and, and waiting to hear it as yeah. opposed to your brain saying, now, what am I going to write today? Mr. Yeah. Know-it-all brain that I, you know, I'm always dealing with it. Because mine's very noisy. You yeah. know, my know-it-all brain just wants to finish it and, yeah. you know, name it and figure it out. And, and I got to get that guy off doing something else. And, and but being able to sort of be in that sort of joyful hunting and gathering part yeah. of the childlike creative flow I'll write down the weirdest stuff. Hmm. I mean, the weirdest lines. Um, when we were writing This Kiss, yeah, I was writing with Annie Roboff and Robin Lerner. We had this great first verse that Annie written a lot of that.
0: Was it any kind of brief? Was it for Faith Hill? Did you know you were no, writing for we, somebody? Faith what?
2: didn't cut it for like a year and a half after we wrote it. I mean, it was like, that's one of those songs. Everybody got a pitch to them and nobody cut it. And then all of a sudden...
0: So that was just an afternoon you wrote, walked in and wrote a song.
2: No, we, well, we wrote the song in a couple of days, a couple of sessions. Annie had written... A lot of the really hooky stuff in that first verse and a lot of the melody. Uh, really, she wrote a great deal of the melody. and she, But we had like great first verse, great chorus, and then we're sitting there with the dreaded have to write the second verse where you got to say something different, but it's got to still relate to the song. And if you've written a really great song, by the time you get to the end of the first chorus, it already feels complete. Yeah. And then the hard part of, right, about the second verse, it has to go somewhere from there. So I what I do in a situation like that is I just cuz I love the first part I'll just sing sing through it and then just launch my voice into some nonsense syllables that makes no sense and sometimes it'll be you know mm-hmm. and I so I blurted out um Cleopatra was a snowflake. Cleopatra was a snowflake and then they both looked at me and went no 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 we're not putting Cleopatra in the song and I'm like I know I know but there's a reason I said that. Mm. And they're huh. like, no, there's not. Mm-hmm. You know, that's stupid. We're not doing that. And, I'm, and I kept going. Cleopatra was a snowflake. It feels like that. Cleopatra was a snowflake. Cleopatra had a snowflake. And they're like, we're going to lunch. Mm-hmm. And they left me there. And they come back twenty minutes later. Cleopatra, Cleopatra and a snowflake. Mm-hmm. And there. And Annie got right up in my face and she said, we are not mm-hmm. using Disney characters in this song. And I thought, Disney. Wait, hold on. Cleopatra wasn't Disney, 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 Disney. And I'm thinking, Cinderella said to Snow White. And then I realized, oh my God, Cinderella said to Snow White, how does love get so off course? How does?" And then we wrote the second verse very quickly because it was like, now we have, like, Cinderella is talking to Snow White going, how does this get so crazy? Yeah. You know, and which is really funny. Yes. And, and then, the, the, you know, the bridge was like, bub, 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 bub. you know, we, we got unstuck.
1: Cinderella said to Snow White, How does love get so off course? Oh, all I wanted was a white knight With a good heart Soft touch, fast horse Ride me off into the sunset Baby, I'm forever yours It's the way you love me It's a feeling like this It's centrifugal
0: It's funny though because you had Snowflake. Yeah, because snow, it gave you Snow White. Somebody
2: from the other side of creative <laughs> flow is helping me. Mm-hmm. That's what I truly believe. Mm-hmm. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not alone. You're not alone. We're not alone in this. We have a collective. I believe a collective wisdom, and you know anybody that's crossed over to the other side is part of that. Soup. Is in there. John Prine, bring yeah. it on, baby. Anything you want me to say, just come on.
0: <laughs> well, I think, yeah. And I know you talk, talked last night about a song that you wrote trying to channel John Prine. Yeah. I thought listening to a bunch of your music over the last couple of days that some people are more naturally in tune to the language and the building blocks of writing. And as you say, it can be cultivated, it can be studied, it can be improved upon. But you can also just tell, and I, you know, I've, run into a handful of people like this where it's like you just everything that went in stayed in you know (laughs) you know what I mean every sound you heard is still kind of in there and available to be or what you would say is well it's maybe I haven't even heard it before maybe it's just moving through me maybe it doesn't have anything to do with me but I just hear I mean I hear all the way the Beatles are getting shaken up on this record and but coming back out through you you know like the certainly
2: oh the yeah The first
0: I mean, tune is like you know
2: we're so influenced by yeah that. yeah yeah absolutely all
1: around the-
0: These are the ingredients we cook with, you know? Yeah. We're making a new thing, but we all kind of have these ingredients and you've got a lot of song ingredients in that you've gathered over And over I your think life.
2: too, you think about people who love music and have soaked in a lot of music yeah. and then they go to become a songwriter yeah. and I think you can become better at recognizing what to grab and work with and how to play with it and how to construct it like. Yeah. Um, you know, you can Follow the directions in Legos, or you can just make some shit up with Legos that nobody's ever seen before. And I kind of love both worlds, but I'm not a direction follower kind of thing. But I do love, I love feeling the connection to things that have influenced me. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, would love to make a jazz record. There's a part of me that also says... That's a territory that I would have to be very apologetic about on the front end because I'm not knowledgeable, but it would be fun to do, you know. And nobody's gonna, like, I did a a record that's never been released that's all in Sanskrit. I'll send it to you. It's really cool. Wow. Um, it's um, I did it for Deepak Chopra uh, for a yoga tape. Yeah. And I, I collaborated with a guy named Kirby Shellstad, who's a fantastic musician in Nashville, and they're beautiful chants and they're layered and they're kind of like they're kind of you know meditative and I'm you know at some point I'll put it out because it's really cool um I did the the prism album which is in nine different languages and I'm you know took me 10 years to do did that children's album on astronomy I mean I've just had this really wanderlust about trying different things just because I want to try it because I think it'd be fun you know and be interesting
0: how do you just stay motivated to do all that stuff like what's driving you to keep you can't stop i
2: mean i'll run out of time before i run out of wanting to do it you know i find it fascinating if i had to do the same kind of record over and over again i think i would become very bored and i would be feel very redundant you know even this record has its own flavor that's not like anything else i've ever done very it's very live band kind of and ray kennedy who's just an absolute genius in the studio. You know, I really want to do a children's, a proper children's album. I've got all these songs I wrote with my son when he was in the first, second, and third grade. They're really entertaining, you know. I have them all. I just have to find the time to to put it together. I want to do a record that's all vocals, no words, and long chords that barely move, so that... You would just put it on like you know they have these binaural beats yeah. and stuff. Like I I might collaborate with someone that puts yeah. like underneath yeah. that, but just really really still. Yeah. Because I have ADHD and I'm like working on trying to get to sleep and stuff. And I'm thinking if just it could just be one note. And there are some amazing recordings that go on for eight hours, just like ooh. I mean that.
0: I know we're scratching the surface. I know you have such a extremely deep and vast and long I can go on st- Storied Korea.
2: <laughs> Just to ask me about me. I can go on forever. But
0: um yeah. but I do want to say how how much fun it is to get to talk to you a little bit. Well,
2: it's yeah. so great because I've I've been a fan of yours and I've been loving your your podcast, your conversations. And I love the in-depth, the opportunity to go in depth on some of the stuff that's all around us and it's so, we're like steeped in this mystery. Mm. And, I mean, life to me is mystery school. <laughs> it just really is. And um, and how it's something that most every human, if you ease them into the conversation in the right way, depending on who they are, they're fascinated to go there. They're like, that gets them awake, you know? Yes. It's really interesting. And anyway, the, the bottom line is I think we're all being very well cared for and looked after, even though it looks like a freaking mess down here. Yeah a lot of the time
0: well Beth I think you are helping us look after ourselves <laughs> through your work I hope so and so thank you for that and I'm really sorry for your recent loss and I'm so grateful and thankful that you did choose to come out and and perform this week and this month and to, to talk to me today
2: well I'm so glad to finally get to sit in this <laughs> sacred room with you and uh, and maybe next time we'll play some music yeah you. I know it <laughs> Yeah. thank you for having me
0: Thank you. There she was, my friends, Beth Nielsen Chapman. What a story, what a beautiful soul, and what a hell of a songwriter. I decided to take her advice and to write some new verses to yesterday. Not easy. But here it is. Paul's first verse and bridge, my second and third verses.
3: Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away, now it seems as though Looking back I can see the wheels come off the track But in the moment we don't think like that It only happens Looking back Why she had to go I don't know She wouldn't say I said something wrong now, I long for yesterday, yesterday. I don't know why I kept my heart at bay. I wish I could have found another way to show my love. Yesterday, to show my love, yesterday.
0: I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts,
3: live streams, and more, Visit wbgo.org slash studios.